From last week, what we, we read was, is, is uh, on the Sabbath, after, after church services, not unlike the way that we do it, Jesus had gone to somebody's house, and as he, he's there, he's saying hey to everybody, bam, there's a dude standing in front of him who's sick. And this guy has droopsy, which we saw last week is actually chronic uh, uh, edema. And so this would have been a guy who would have been swollen. He, uh, over time, if you deal with chronic edema, what that ends up causing is, is uh, actual rotting at your appendages because blood flow can't get all the way out. And so he would have stunk. He would have been swollen. He would have been somebody that was very clearly sick. And so Jesus shows up at this guy's house and bam, there's this dude there. And so they were setting him up. The Pharisees wanted to see it, what Jesus would do when faced with a obvious need for healing. And so Jesus turned to them and threw it back on them and said, hey, which one of you, if your son fell in a well because you had compassion on your son, wouldn't get him out whether it was on the Sabbath or not? Which one of you, even if you had an ox that fell in a, in a well, wouldn't take the time for for financial gain to get him out. So here's this guy who's sick. Is it right for me to heal him on Sunday or let him be in pain? And then Jesus, recognizing and showing his humanity, puts his arm around the guy, says he took him, he healed him, and then he sent him out. Like, get out of here. You're not going to be an object lesson. You're a human being. And so Jesus then begins teaching. And we saw last week his, his discussion about seating and then this week, it's the same thing. In fact, last week, I really struggled where to break this up and, and kind of broke it up where I did just, just for, for brevity. I didn't want us to go, you know, an hour and a half to yesterday and, and, or last Sunday. And so here's the thing. When we read stuff going on about the Pharisees, it is really easy for us to look at them and go, man, those guys were jerks. In fact, I, if you get online and you read, you'll say, see people say, Jesus uh, didn't, di- didn't spend time with the religious people. He only spent time with, with, with the uber sinners, you know, the, the prostitutes and the drunkards. And, and, and people will point that out a lot. But if you really pay attention to Jesus' ministry, that's not entirely true. He actually spent a lot of time with the Pharisees. And he was it kind to them? He tries to point out their fallacies. But if you study the history of where the Pharisees came from, it was actually a good thing. You see, after the Maccabean Rebellion and Israel uh, had gained its independence from Macedonia and they were kind of trucking along there, um, there was a group of people that recognized that the nation of Israel wasn't following the law. And so they kind of had a revival of studying the Bible, studying the law, and then uh, trying to teach that to other people. But the, the Pharisee, the group of Pharisees in New Testament world was really small, and so Jesus spends a lot of time talking to them. Like I said, it's really easy for us to, to make the Pharisees out as the bad guys, and whenever we read about them in the Bible, go, oh, those those Pharisees. In fact, we use that term today as, as a kind of a pejorative, as, as a way to be, oh, that guy's just a Pharisee kind of thing. And here, when I was at seminary, I had a, a professor that taught the Gospels, and he said to me, um, whenever you read the word Pharisee in the New Testament, in your mind, you need to replace that with the word Baptist. Because, very similarly, we are a group of people that are trying to follow God's word. We're trying to point people to God's word. And the same temptations that the Pharisees were tempted with to become 
arrogant and egotistical and think that the, the kingdom was all about them and have that attitude that says, God, thank you that I'm not a sinner like they are. We are tempted with that very same thing. And I thought there was some wisdom in what that professor said. But i got to tell you that as I've gone through my life, uh, I found it much healthier whenever I read the word Pharisee to replace that with Tom. To look at my own heart in these stories and recognize that as we go through life, it is so easy for the enemy to tempt us to get to a point to where you're walking through Walmart at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning and some girl walks by who reeks of beer and she's wearing these ugly PJ pants that, that really are about three sizes too small for her. And to think in your mind, girl, you should have got you a full-length mirror you walked out in that outfit I cannot believe how she's raising her kids for it's easy for me to fall into a situation because I'm trying to fight for what's right in my life for me not to look at people who aren't doing that and forget that they're lost and lost people act like lost people and my job is not to make them act like little fake Christians Because what they're desperately in need of is not to change their behavior. What they're desperately in need of is a Savior. And so it's really easy for us. It's really easy for me to walk through life with that same attitude that we see in the life of the Pharisees and go, thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like him. Woo! That guy's messed up. And so as we look at this story, this entire thing that we're going to see today is happening in the house of this Pharisee. Jesus is clearly addressing them. And the point that he's trying to make over and over and over again is this. God has given the nation of Israel special place. You've had the law. You've had God's word. You are the people who were originally invited to the party. And you know what? You couldn't show up. You had too much going on. So God has sent out to the beggars and the blind and the lame and the sick and brought them into the party. What he wanted them to see is that they were the blind, the lame, the sick. And if we're going to walk away from this and learn something, it's not going to be to point our finger at other religions. It's not going to be to point our finger at other people who are sinning. If we're going to learn from this lesson that Jesus is teaching that we're going to look at today, what we have to do is point the finger firmly at ourselves. And we have to examine our own hearts. So let's look and see what Jesus said. So right after Jesus talks about seating and where everybody's supposed to sit, he gives the parable of the great banquet. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So here Jesus is trying to move this guy, these people's thought process from the externals to the internals. Hey, we're all going to die. There's going to be a resurrection. No sooner than he finished this, somebody says, 
one of those reclined at table with him, heard these things and said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I have been there, my friend. Okay, this is what's going on here. And this has happened to me this week. I was uh, with a guy, and he's not a believer. He doesn't go to church. He doesn't pretend to be a believer. Uh, but he knew I was a preacher. And like we said before, that generally speaking, when I'm out uh, in town or around and people find out that I'm a preacher, and I will say it's not the best way to get invited to a dinner party. Um, You want to shut down a conversation at a party when people go, so what do you do? Because every guy says that, right? That's what we all say immediately. And when I say, well, I'm I'm the pastor over at North Linco, invariably people go, oh, well, it's good seeing you. Right, I was at a party about two weeks ago, and I noticed that I, it was me and all the moms who were standing around watching the kids, and all the guys were gone. And I'm like, where's all the guys? I saw all the men here. And then later a guy came out, and he had like this Yeti cup that smelled strongly of Miller Lite. And I'm like, oh, that's where all the men are, because I'm the preacher. That's right. So I couldn't go find them, because then that'll just make them all have to hide their beer. And so then I'm like, great, now I'm, I'm stuck out here with the ladies. Um, so we talked a lot about shopping and Target and... Uh, Okay, I've gotten far afield. Oh, my gosh. Uh, So I'm with this guy, and he finds out that I'm the preacher. And so every time the conversation would turn toward anything, he felt like, to me, it would make me feel more comfortable to say something religious. So we could be talking about this calendar. And, you know, so next Thursday, what I'm going to try to do is hook up with this guy, and we'll see what we can do for this training. And he's like, well, if the Lord wills it. See, I know how to talk to you, right? And I'm like, oh, for the love. Are you serious? And so every couple of 10, 15 minutes, he'd throw something out, you know, hey, you know, hey, but Jesus loves them. Just arrest the guy. Shut up. Let's go. I, I know I'm the preacher. All right, so that's exactly what happens. Jesus here is trying to make a point, and one of the guys just throws out this religious platitude. Blessed is everyone who has a meal at the, at the, the last day, and this tips the wagon. Jesus goes, all right, fine, fine, let's, let's, let's play this. And so Jesus then says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, you can drill into this, and if you just think about it, it doesn't take a, you know, a theology degree to see that Jesus is kind of covering all the things that go on in our life that are excuses why we can't follow him today. Family, oh, I, can't, I can't follow Jesus today and do what he's called me to do because I got, I got these things to do. I used to, Ann and I have joked a lot in the last few weeks, I used to think when we had kids in diapers that it couldn't get any worse. And, and guys who have kids in diapers, I'm not... I know you're looking for the light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm sorry to tell you that the teenage years ain't it. That's the train coming at you. There's nothing you can do at this point, I know, but it, that's not the light at the end of the tunnel. I used to think that it was rough when you're trying to, you know, trying to wrangle them, and they're all running around, and Molly's hiding in the clothes stand. I'm like, Molly, Molly, where are you? And Emily's crying because I'm too far. I used to think that was the hard time. But now... Ann and I literally have to have a calendar meeting every day. 
All right, so at 3 o'clock, you've got to, you got a meeting at 4, so you've got to hurry. You've got to take Ruthie to softball. Drop her off. She's going to be at Independent Field. Get back here because you've got to meet Lizzie because she's got this thing. And then once, and I'm going to take this kid and go over here. And somehow in there, we've got to figure out something to eat. I don't know. We're going to throw a frozen pizza at him. And then we're going to, and, and that's every day. Every day is like that. So when do I have time to breathe the Bible? God, I, you surely. And so I make excuses. You got guys who are out, hey, well, I just bought a, I bought a field. I'm expanding my boundaries. And you know, God, I can't be in your word today. I just got a new boat. And surely you understand that I need to get that, that, that sonar checked out. I got me a new car. I got, I've got to go. I, I've got me some new, I've got me a thing. That's one of the things that stuff, God, the enemy will use stuff to keep you away from God all the time, especially in America. So you got family, you've got stuff, and then you got your job. I mean, if ninety, if I get caught reading my Bible at work, people go, well, "We got a good pastor." But if you're working at Goodyear and you're supposed to be building a tire and you've got your Bible up on the machine, that's probably not your supervisor's not going to like that. So my job's going to keep me from being able to serve you. Now, I will say, God has given us a gift in our culture, in that. All those excuses that we used to use for why we don't have time to pray, why we don't have time to be in his word, God's given us something to show us that it has more to do with our priorities than it does with our actual time. Because if I can spend an hour doing this, then I can spend an hour in God's word. In fact, I, I've stopped using my phone as my Bible app because I'm just not disciplined enough. I can't do it. Um, I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm like Joe, I'm getting so blind now that I can't see. And it's essentially, without my glasses, it's a prop. I can't, it's just blurry words. And so I'm trying to find now a large print slimline Bible. I'm finding that those are, I mean, I don't want to walk around with this big dictionary, but I want a Bible because here's what I do. I will say, I'm going to do my quiet time today and I'll pick out my phone and then I've got all those little notifications. And I'm not disciplined enough not to look. If there's a little flashy light that says two on it, I got to open it. And then if I open Instagram to see who, and all all I'm looking at is my own post because two people liked it. And then I go, yeah, I'm pretty good, man. I had two different people like that. And then I go, oh, that's funny. (laughs) Look at what that cat's doing. And then I look at the phone and go, oh, I got to be somewhere in three minutes. So now what this has done is this is. I can never stand before God and say I didn't have time. He's made sure that now I can look at my screen time. Actually, every one of your phones has a, has a place on it where you can look and see how much time you spent on that screen this week. And that's some scary numbers. So we do what's important to us. So all these excuses are just that, excuses. I had a coach one time that said, excuses are like armpits. Everybody has them. They usually stink. (laughs) I'll move on from that. And Ann got a little nervous as I started that analogy, but that's okay. Uh, So, the, the, the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. 
And the servant said, Sir, we've done what you've commanded, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now originally, Jesus is clearly saying, The nation of Israel was invited. You have rejected your Messiah. So it would be really easy for us to go, Not applicable to me. But just a few years after this, we see the church in Laodicea. And Jesus wrote a letter to that church and he told them, You think that you are clothed, that you are healthy, that you have need of nothing. And what you don't realize is that you are blind and naked and desperate. The point that Jesus was trying to make to these Pharisees and the point that Jesus is trying to make to us is we are the crippled and the blind and the lame. We don't bring anything to God that he needs. What is God that, man, that, he, is owed, that he owes man anything? And when we try to use our religiosity, when we try to use our good behavior as a way to bribe God, we become the Pharisees. God, I deserve heaven because I didn't drink. If that's your attitude, you need to drink. God, I deserve heaven because I've never cheated on my wife. God, I deserve heaven because i never done this or that. Whatever's on your list. If you take a position that you think that God owes you anything, then you fail to recognize that we are the poor, the blind, and the naked. And God has compelled us to come. And we, with a grateful heart, should be going, I wasn't invited. This party wasn't for me, but whoo, this cake is good. And so the point Jesus is trying to make to the Pharisees here clearly is applicable to us. And we need to remember that we're the latecomers to this party, but we can still enjoy the party. Now, he goes on to have a commentary. Luke ties these next uh, lessons to what he said to, to fill it out. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, this is not an excuse to hate your father, your mother, your sister, your brother. This isn't justification for you to get in a knockdown drag out argument with your brother. I was talking with someone just a few days ago. I, I had done a funeral one. I, I, that's not right grammar. Not, ain't no good grammar. Um, I had done a funeral a few years ago that I walked out to, to during the visitation and there was nobody there. And I had already talked to the family, so I knew there was family. There was just nobody at the funeral. And come to find out what had happened was was that um, one of the, the children of the deceased had figured out that everybody was going to be at the funeral, so they had gone to Mama's house to get the furniture pieces that they wanted. And other members of the family realized that Susie was gone because she's gone to Mama's house to get the, get the furniture pieces, and so they all went. And so it was me and Mama at the funeral, and actually Garrett, because I'd called him and told him what had gone on, and he came to the funeral to see what I was going to do. It is what it is. But so there were like four of us at the funeral. 
Because all these people clearly didn't love mama as much as they loved mama's stuff. So this has nothing to do with you not liking your family. Because Jesus ends it by this saying, by saying, yea, in the King James, even your own life. So you've got to hate your own life. And then, to make sure that we understood it, he said, except a man take up his cross and follow me, he's not worthy of me. Now, when we hear the word cross, we, we think of nice, pretty crosses in churches or people wearing jewelry with crosses on it. We think of, of a religious symbol. I remember when I was in the Marine Corps, uh, the chaplain's kit that the chaplain used had uh, a cross that had little marks on it. And I always wondered what those marks were. And then I finally figured out that there was a Velcro Jesus that they would stick on the cross for the Catholic service, and then they could take it off for the Protestant service. And I thought that was a great analogy to how most people live their Christian life. They've got a Velcro Jesus, and then when they don't need Jesus, they take him off and put him in his pocket. That's, that's for free. That's not the sermon. My point is, though, is that we think of the cross as a religious symbol. But when Jesus said this, it had nothing to do with religion. Jesus hadn't even died on the cross yet. When he said this, the cross represented one thing and one thing only. Death. An ugly, horrible death. That's all it meant. There was nothing pretty, nothing dramatic. There was nothing about it except death. It would be as if I said, unless you take up the yellow mama, some of you younger guys don't know what that is. That's the, the, the electric chair that the state of Alabama used for years. Unless you take up the needle that's used to put people down, unless you take up death, you're not worthy of following me. He says, unless you hate your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your kids, your wife, even your own life, you're not worthy of me. Unless you take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. And what that is saying is that Jesus should be everything in your life. Now, if you use this to, as an excuse to be a jerk to your wife, you're missing the point. You're to die to yourself. That's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, if you have a car that's more important to me, then that car is an idol. You can't follow me in the car. If fishing is more important to you than Jesus, then, then you've got an idol. You can't have both. If guns are just insert here, I don't know your heart, you do. You know where your temptations lie. And Jesus is saying that to follow me, really follow me, what that means is that we say, all that I am, all my hopes, my dreams, my desires, everything that I love, everything that's important to me, take it. I give you it all. That's what the point that Jesus is trying to make. Jesus doesn't want half of you. He doesn't want three-quarters of you. Jesus wants all of you or nothing. So, Jesus wants you at work to be the best tire builder, the best fireman, the best pharmacist, the best mechanic, the best electrician, the best whatever you are, 
for his glory. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. God wants you to give him your work life. God wants you to give him your family life. God wants you to give him your leisure life. God wants you to give him your future. God wants you to give him your 401k. God wants to give you to give him your health. God wants you to give him everything that you are. Place it in his hands or nothing. He doesn't want half measures. He doesn't want us, like the Pharisees, playing games. He doesn't want us to come in here on Sunday and sing, How Great Thou Art, and then go out there on Monday and be a complete and total jerk at your job. He doesn't want you to come in here and sing praise songs on Sunday and go home and kick the dog and yell at your kids. He wants you to give him everything that you have, and you die to what you want in every area of your life. It's all or nothing. Man looks on the outside. How do we act? How do we look? I look clean. I look nice. I look real good today. I got my bow tie on. See, I look like a real Christian. All the while, with our heart, we're whatever we want to be. That's not going to cut it. And so the text goes on. He gives two examples. One, building a tower, and the other one, of man going to war. Uh, for when uh, Ann and I, we'd only been married about four years and her, her father passed away unexpectedly and we had to move to Texas uh, to um, take care of her grandparents. And so we lived in Dallas and I got a job at a, at a building called City Place. If you ever see the Texas sky, Dallas skyline, uh, when the Cowboys are playing there or something, they always show, you know, those zoom out shots. City Place is the building that's got the green neon around it. You can't miss it. So it lo- and it looks like in the daytime, like the building that the other buildings wouldn't play with. It's like you've got the Dallas skyline, and then you've got this building kind of out there by itself. And it's City Place. It's about a 35-story tall building, and it was built by the same company that owns 7-Eleven. And their plan was is they were going to build this building, and then they were going to build a building just like it next door to it. The Texas freeway goes in between it, and they were going to put this really pretty bridge between the two buildings. Well, they got this building done. And then they realized how expensive it was to build a building. And so they had done the site work for the second building next door. And they ended up, since they'd already dug the pit out for the foundation and everything, they ended up turning that into a driving range because we didn't, they didn't have the money to build the other building. And everybody in Texas made fun of them about that. And it's like everywhere you went, if somebody, if you, people ask me where I worked, I'm just like, oh, I work at City Place. They would immediately go, oh, that's the place where 7-Eleven ran out of money. So what do y'all do with the other place over there? Ha, 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 ha. And what we would do is because we could get up on the roof of the first place and there was this big, huge, empty hole over here. We, this was the time when everybody got the AOL CDs. So we would have hundreds of these AOL CDs and we would get up on the roof and see if the AOL really is faster coming off that 35-story building. It's not any faster than any other place. Uh, so what he's saying is just like City Place, when they built the building, they didn't count the cost. Jesus is saying, when you follow after me, you need to think about the fact that it's going to cost you everything. Don't flippantly come following after me. 
Don't just put a cross on your lapel and think that makes you a Christian. Because if you do that, that makes you worse than an infidel. Because you're going to hell in an air-conditioned bus. You think because you go to church that you're fine. You think because you don't drink or you don't smoke or you don't beat your wife or whatever your thing is, if you think that that's going to get you to heaven, then the enemy's got you. Because you're going through life thinking, I'm fine, I don't drink. And Jesus is saying, no, you got to count the cost. you got to realize it cost you everything. Because if you do it in half measure, it's not going to work. No commander takes an army to the field and doesn't know what he's going up against, lest he be demolished. He's going to count and say, okay, so I got 10,000, they got 10,000. All right, we can fight that. If I got 10,000, they got 50,000, I'm going to be utterly destroyed. Jesus is saying, don't do things by half measures. And then he closes with this idea of salt. He says salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has an ear, let him hear. All right, so it's hard for us to get this because we want salt. We just go down to Johnson's and buy a box of Morton's, right? Salt is super cheap. In this day, salt was very expensive. It's been, salt has been something that's difficult to come by through most of human history. Uh, the British got in trouble for taxing salt and, and on the Indian subcontinent. Salt has always been something of high value. So what the common man in Israel would use would be a mix of stuff that tasted kind of salty, but it wasn't salt. Real salt, NACL, doesn't lose its saltiness. You can take real salt, and it'll always be salty. But if you take this mix of, of stuff that maybe came from where the dead seed had dr dried up a little bit, and they got that crust up and sold it as salt, or maybe they, they got salt from digging a little bit, and they found that, that that's not real salt, and so you may buy it, but over time it's going to lose its saltiness, and so it's not, not any value for anything. Jesus says in another text, it's only good to throw out, because what they would do is like, kind of like gravel. They'd throw it out, nothing would grow in it, it was just junk. And what Jesus is saying, test your authenticity. Real salt doesn't lose its saltiness. Sodium is an element. It doesn't stop being sodium. If you've got something that you think is real, as the Bible says, examine yourself daily that you're in the faith. Now, I love you guys. I pray for the people in this church daily. And as I prepared for this, it broke my heart to realize I was going to have to preach a sermon that's so... In your face, but I want you to understand, because I love you, there are lots of people who don't drink a drop of alcohol who will end up in hell. There are a lot of people who don't smoke who are going to go to hell. There are people that preach that are going to go to hell. There are people who are in the choir who are going to go to hell. When we die 
and stand in front of Jesus. He's not going to ask where you go to church. He's not going to ask for your Sunday school pen. He's not going to ask for what lessons you prepared for when you taught. He's not going to ask what songs you sang. He's either going to say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. And the most wicked, evil thing I could do is not be honest with what this text says and let you leave here thinking because you came to church, you're going to go to heaven and then you go to hell. I'm the watchman on the tower. I'm telling you, look at your heart. Look at your life. Have you given Jesus everything? I'm begging you with tears in my eyes. Don't go to hell being a good person. The only way you will ever go to heaven is if you give Jesus your whole life. The only hope we have for eternity is that we fall before a holy God and say, I bring nothing. I am the lame. I am the blind. I am the naked. I am the sick. Oh God, please. Oh please. Oh please save me. That is our only hope. You can't earn it. It's not possible. Oh, please, don't walk out of this room this morning without examining your heart. Look to see if you're bearing fruit. Now, right now, in Glencoe, Alabama, if you go look at my rose bushes, they look almost dead. Because they hadn't any rain. And I, you try to water them and it just doesn't do the same thing. So those of you grow a garden knows exactly what I'm talking about. What they need is rain. What they need is all those nutrients to feed them. So you could be a Christian in this room. And you're examining your heart and you're saying, I'm not bearing fruit. If you know that there's a time in your life when you told Jesus, I'm giving you everything. You know there's a point in your life when you've given God your heart, but you're not bearing fruit. You're not taking up your cross today. Just like those rose bushes, they've got to be watered. My phone has got to be charged. I many times have witnessed to somebody and been talking to them, and they go, well, you know what? I read the Bible well, that's not how the Bible works. you got to feed on it every day. And if you're not doing the things to water your heart, if you're not doing the things to feed your heart, you're not going to bear fruit. Paul talks about people who make it to heaven just barely. Don't be that person. You're walking away with the best things in life laying on the table. And so as we come to a time of invitation, there, there are two calls, really. One is to obey the command to examine yourself daily, to look in your heart. Am I bearing fruit? Have I given my all to Jesus? And if you don't know that there's a time that you've done that, if you don't know that there's a time in your life when you've given God your everything, please, today, Call on the name of the Lord to be saved. 
Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be saved. And if you're a Christian and you know there was a time, but just right now it feels dry. Keith Green sang a song that said, uh, My heart is hard, my prayers are cold, my faith seems worn and old. But I know how it ought to be, alive to you and dead to me. So what can be done for an old heart like mine, but soften it up with oil and wine? The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me in you and the wine of your blood. There are times in our Christian walk when we need to renew our walk with him to say, God, please give me the hunger to be in your word. God, please set me afire again for you. So this altar is open for that. Father God. Oh, Father God. God, if there is anybody in this room who does not know you, who has never called on your name to be saved. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict and draw. God, we pray that you would pour your Spirit out on this place. Oh, God, don't let anyone walk out of this room and go to hell. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict. God, we pray that you would draw. Oh, God, we need you. And God, for that believer who's shriveled and brown, oh God, I pray that they would fall on their knees, that they would renew their walk with you. God, we pray for miracles this morning. God, I believe that you still are a God that saves. So God, I pray that you would move. God, I pray that your spirit would fill this place. Oh God, we pray. We need you. We desperately need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.